Well, a few weeks ago, as a family, we started going through the book of Genesis as part of our family worship uh, in the evenings. And, of course, Genesis is, well, at least the, you know, the first part of Genesis contains some of the most important chapters in all of the Bible for understanding who you are and who God is. And, of course, chapter 1, it's creation And then by the time you get to chapter 3, it's the fall. And as we're reading through Genesis 3 and the account of the serpent and Adam and Eve falling into sin, I am reminded of the silliness of that account. Namely, where Adam, realizing that he's naked, he and his wife cover themselves, and then they go hide in some bushes in the garden and they, they're hiding from God. And it's silly because it reveals how sin makes a rational creature made in the image of God into one who is totally irrational. And there's nothing more irrational than thinking you can hide from an all-knowing and all-seeing God. And yet what we find in those early pages of the Bible is a picture of man's condition throughout the ages. Because of sin, all people are born with a propensity to run and hide from their Creator. Adam set this off in motion, and all of his offspring have this same kind of intrinsic brokenness where instead of running to God, we run from Him. We were made for God, but we have a desire to pursue our own interests. Rather than discovering God's will and submitting to Him, man seeks to create a life apart from Him. And this is what we call sin. This is our condition. We, by nature, run from God. People do it in various ways, of course. Some people do it through religion. They do it through religious works, and these are tokens of divine acknowledgement, which often act as a smokescreen to hide them from the reality of what's going on in their relationship to God. Jesus came across this all the time in the Gospels. Or people run and hide from God through constructing various philosophies. They develop a worldview that allows them to hide behind a belief system, and they can even make a belief system that does not require a creator at all. And we who read the Bible understand these things. We know that man is running from God. We expect the unbeliever to do this. We expect the atheist and the irreligious to run, run, run. But how do we make sense of it when a Christian does this? What about those times when the true believer turns away from the will of God to pursue his or her own course? If Adam represents the natural man running from God then certainly Jonah represents when it's a believer who does it. We pick up this study in, of course, chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. 
and beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. He's only mentioned one other time in all of the Bible, and that is in 2 Kings chapter 14. Sorry, I should say only one other time in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 14, where Jonah served as God's prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II. It's a very brief mention. It's one verse. But what we learn from that verse is that God gave Jonah good news to preach to Israel. He tells Israel that he is going to restore to them the land that the Syrians had taken from them. I have a competing preacher today. So Jonah is given a message in 2 Kings that's good news for the people. And he goes and preaches the good news. God's going to restore their land that the Syrians had taken. And this probably made Jonah a popular prophet. And here we see that God is calling upon his prophet once again. Here, God has another task for him. This time to preach against a wicked people in the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And these were the sworn enemies of Israel. The city was located in what we know today as northern Iraq. And at one time in ancient history, it was the largest city in the world, boasting some 600,000 people. It was so large, in fact, that it was a three days journey just to walk from one side to the other. And what we know about the Assyrians, not just from Scripture, but from ancient history, is that they were a very cruel and heartless people. The Assyrians had a reputation for showing no mercy to their enemies. They were masters of torture and brutality. I don't want to ruin your dinner later on, but I'll just give you a few examples. They wouldn't just kill their enemies, they would capture them and then bury them alive. Or they would skin them alive. Or they would impale them onto poles in the hot sun and have them die a slow and miserable death. Do you get the picture here? So these are a very vile and evil people and they hated the nation of Israel. And it is to this cruel, ungodly nation that God calls Jonah. And he gives him three commands. He wants him to get up, he wants him to go, and he wants him to preach. And so he says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now God does something here he is not obligated to do. He doesn't always do this in Old Testament history. He is sending one of Israel's prophets to go to a Gentile nation to preach a message of repentance that he might forgive them of their atrocities. We see here a picture of the mercy of God. 
God says in Ezekiel, another prophet, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And rather than bringing his wrath against this city, he sends them a warning in the form of a prophet. And this is where you expect the Old Testament prophet to do like the others did. They get the call from God and they turn and they go fulfill that calling. But, shockingly, we read in verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Twice in this verse, we are told that Jonah did what was completely irrational. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Now, I think Jonah is a true believer. I don't think he is a false prophet. I don't think God has those in his storehouse of prophets to send his messages. I think, if you want to put it in a modern vernacular, I think he's a Christian. This is a true believer. He's been called by God to obedience. He is God's representative, and it is his job to obey him. Now, because of this, it's hard to understand what exactly he's thinking here. We all know that God is omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere at once. And surely Jonah was familiar with King David and the Psalms that he wrote. That would have been 200 years prior to him. Just to give you an example, Psalm 139, verse 7. See if any of this would contradict what Jonah's doing here. David says, where, can I, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And so David recognized there was no place one could go where God wasn't. And this is supposed to be a comfort to God's people. This is meant to be a blessing because we don't want to go any place where God is not there. And so it's, it's a reassuring word that David writes in this poem. So why would Jonah get the idea that he could somehow run away from the presence of the Lord? It's possible that he had adopted some of the theology of the pagans and the theology of the pagans was that there was a God over Assyria and there was a God over Philistia and that's their territory where they were God. And so maybe Jonah has bought into some of that bad theology and he thinks if I just run away from Israel, I can run away from God. But I don't think so. I think Jonah has hardened his heart and he thinks he can get away from what God has called him to do. But, 
it seems so irrational. I mean, really, to run from God? Now, sin is always irrational. Sin never makes sense. And so, we see Jonah in a very dark place. We see him intentionally heading in the opposite direction. And that's where Tarshish is. God calls Jonah to go east, and Jonah heads down to the docks and boards a ship heading west. As far west as he could go. In fact, it's believed that Tarshish was a port on the west coast of Spain, which is about as far as the ancient world had been explored. This is where Jonah wants to go, as far away from the will of God as possible. Now, I think it's easy for us to look back on some of these figures in the Old Testament, in the Bible, and when they sin, we just think, man, how could they even do that? But do you realize that you do the same thing every time you choose to sin? Instead of moving toward God and what He has called you to do, you run in the other direction. Spiritually speaking, you flee to Tarshish. I'm not going to forgive her. Nope. No way. Or... I'm not going to have real accountability with another brother to lead my family and to turn away from sin and to pursue Christ. Or I'm not going to surrender that sin. Or I'm not going to serve God in that way. And so you run, even if it's just in your mind, you run to a place and you do it through rationalization. And you begin to convince yourself, it's all good. God knows my struggles. God knows my situation. He knows my needs. He knows I got burned by that person. He knows I'm not being fulfilled in this area. He's okay with a little bit of compromise. And so we rationalize, which really just become rational lies. Or another way you might flee to Tarshish is by busying yourself with lots of other things. You distract yourself with projects so as to not be able to fulfill what God requires of you. Keeping yourself on the go is a great way to run from God. Maybe you hide from Him through religion, like I mentioned earlier. Very popular. Church is a great place to hide from God. You have a sense of fulfilling your spiritual duty, and then you can spend all the rest of your time doing whatever you want without really living for Him. I grew up Roman Catholic. And in those times when I was in sin and people wanted to have a conversation with me about God, Catholicism was the place that I hid. And so they start talking about Jesus or heaven or hell or whatever the subject is. And I throw up this shield 
that I was hiding behind that was called Catholicism. I'm Roman Catholic. I've got a belief system. Back off. There's lots of ways we can be like Jonah. And it's interesting to think that man is the only created thing in all of the universe that does this, that resists God, if you think about it. God calls the stars and planets, He scatters them and puts them in their place, and they obey. And He calls to the animals, and they do exactly what He created them to do. And He calls to the birds, and they fly to the height that He has determined or He ordains the sun to rise, or He commands the waves to stop at a certain spot and they obey, and then He says to you, go, or He says to the unbeliever, come, and man says, no! This is our condition. And I wish I could say it was totally gone once you're saved. Hey, once you're saved, you're lockstep in obedience to God all the way. I wish I could say that. We can become like Jonah. God calls us and He gives us something for us and we, spiritually speaking, head in the opposite direction and we are deluded enough to think that we can get away from Him. Now, I gave you a little insight into the Assyrian culture, but we don't know why exactly Jonah's running just yet. What is happening that's causing him to go in the opposite direction? Just to jump ahead, this is chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah says, this is, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So we discover in chapter 4 the reason Jonah did not want to obey is because he feels justified in the Ninevites getting hell. And he thinks that is what they deserve and I am not going to go preach to them because you might forgive them and I'm not going to do that. I want no part of this. Just to give you a picture of the different kind of emotions this might bring, Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, calling Jonah to go to the Ninevites would be like asking a Jew to go to Hitler after the Holocaust and telling him that God loved him and that everything would be forgiven if he would repent. Jonah says, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it. And we're going to see throughout this book that it's not only the outwardly rebellious people of Nineveh that need to stop running from God. Sometimes it's those in the church who need to stop running as well. Verse 4, back to chapter 1. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea 
so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah is running from God. And just like in the case of Adam in Genesis 3, here comes God to find him. If Jonah thinks he's going to run away from the presence of the Lord, he's got another thing coming. The hound of heaven is on his trail. It says in verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. It was so great, in fact, that the ship that they were in is threatening to break apart. And when this happens, it's time to panic. Now, scholars tell us that the sailors on this ship were probably Phoenicians, some of history's greatest sailors. They were well acquainted with storms at sea, and storms on the Mediterranean were very common. But this one was no ordinary storm. This storm was from God. And it says in verse 5, the mariners were afraid. Now when lifelong sailors begin to be afraid, you know this is something serious. All of a sudden, these guys become very religious. It says, each cried out to his God. Now sailors have never had a reputation of being pious or holy. Even in our day. But when you encounter a storm like this, you would be surprised at how many people all of a sudden get very religious and they're so desperate, they even call on the God that they are hiding from. In fact, they're so desperate, it says, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, this is what you do in this kind of storm. The heavier the ship the more likely it's going to take on water and the more likely it's going to sink. And so when people find themselves in this situation, the things that they got to do is just make the ship lighter and so they're dumping all of this cargo overboard. Now, keep in mind, this cargo represents all of their profits. Okay, So these sailors are not going to Tarshish because they just love the open sea. They're doing it to make money, and they make money by delivering cargo from one location to another, and if you don't have the cargo, you don't get paid. And you know it's bad, and you know it's desperate when these men decide it's time to take all of our valuables, this is our paycheck for this week or this month, and there it goes overboard. Now, as I was picturing this, I was thinking about how Jonah's sin affects all of those people around him. This is is the reality of sin. This is what sin does. People in our day like to think that they can live in sin 
And it's their privacy. It's only between them and whoever. And they're not going to hurt anybody. And so they say, hey, it's my body. I'll do what I want with it. Or they'll say, don't like abortion? Don't have one. Or they'll say, what do you care if two men or two women want to marry each other? It's not going to affect your marriage. Heard that one a hundred times. But those are lies. Because sin does not happen in a vacuum. It is not localized. It is not isolated. It will always bleed forth and affect all of those around you, starting with the ones closest to you. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So if you have a society that welcomes sin and celebrates sin, it's not going to be a society that has the blessing of God. Because sin is a reproach to any people. And so God has made the world in such a way that what you do affects your neighbor and what your neighbor does affects you. And what Jonah has done here, thinking this is just between him and God, he's going to go the other way and it's not going to have any effect on anybody else, he's deceived. Consider this. He puts everyone on that ship in danger. I assume there were other ships on the sea at that time that got caught in the storm as well. Put them in danger. It cost these men all of their income for this trip. The ship has been damaged because of the storm, undoubtedly. Because of the loss of income, this trip is going to affect their families. It's going to affect how their families eat that week or that month. It's going to affect their future business if they get a reputation for not being able to make the trip. And this is all because of one man's decision to disobey God. Add to that, top it off, with a half a million people who are going to be without a preacher who's supposed to bring them a message of God's forgiveness if they repent. And if you add one more, sin destroys you from within. Sin makes you a miserable person. When you defy God's calling, when you go in the opposite direction of God's will for you, you are going to become a miserable person and your life is going to spiral down and down and down and down. Because sin pulls everything down. In fact, down is the direction we keep seeing Jonah go. I think this is intentional by the author. Look at Jonah 1.3. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. But Jonah had gone down, verse 5, into the inner part of the ship and he laid down and was fast asleep. I think these directional markers are intentional to show us that the direction that Jonah 
is heading is down, and the ultimate down is hell itself. So Jonah is on a crash course. The ship is going down. He's oblivious to what his sin has caused because we read in verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah has rejected the call of God. He has put himself and everyone else on that ship in danger. And rather than being conscious stricken, Jonah the prophet of God is asleep. Isn't that precious? <laughs> now I think there's a picture here also. I mean, there's so much in this book for us. I think this is a picture of what happens when disobedience puts us into a spiritual slumber. We, we become numb to the things of God. We may not even care that we are drifting away. It seems here that Jonah has become oblivious to how much damage he's already caused because he's not in a good place with God. He is on the run from God and he is so delusional that it's not even tormenting him as it ought. And so God has to use this captain to kick him and wake him up. And God might do that in your life too. Don't be surprised if you start to drift away that God sends someone in your path to wake you up. That's, that's a mercy from the Lord. So the captain of the ship comes to Jonah not to help him, not to ask him to help them, but to beg him to pray to his God. Now, apparently they weren't getting anywhere with their prayers and they thought, hey, there's one more guy on the ship. We know nothing about him. Let's wake him up. Let's ask him to call upon his God. Maybe we missed one of the gods as we were praying. But Jonah's not in a healthy spiritual place. How do you call on God when you are at the same time running from Him? How do you call on Him when you are in the midst of defying Him? You can't. In fact, God does not hear the prayer of rebels. And there's one prayer that God will receive from those types, and that is a prayer of repentance. You cannot live a life of purposeful disobedience and have a relationship with God at the same time. You just can't. Imagine robbing a bank, just to give you an extreme example, robbing a bank and you go home and you ask God to bless your dinner. There's some obvious sin issues that need to be worked out before you can go to God, clearly. So, the captain asks Jonah to pray, and we are not told that Jonah does. 
In fact, nowhere in this tumultuous storm, nowhere in this entire first chapter do we see Jonah crying out to God. And the reason is because he's still on the run. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. This is akin to rolling dice or choosing straws, and it is a way to take out human choice and leave it up to fate or leave it up to the divine hand. And wouldn't you know it, they roll the dice and everything points to the stranger who was asleep. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every, its every decision is from the Lord. So God's not going to let Jonah get away with this here. The random roll of some dice, and Jonah is the culprit. And maybe Jonah now is finally waking up to the fact that God is coming after him. Maybe now he will come clean and turn to God. Verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah has been hiding from God, and apparently he's been hiding his identity from these other men. They wanted to know what's going on, and he confesses to them and probably tells them everything. Maybe he even told them that he was a prophet. Now, I think it's fascinating that he tells them that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven who made the dry sea and, sorry, the dry land and the sea. And he tells them that he's running away from him. Now, if you fear him, wouldn't that make sense that you would then obey him? I mean, if God is really as great as you say he is, he's the God of both dry land and sea. This would be a very big God in their theology, in their thinking. Then why are you living this way? Uh, I mean, if God is really this great and you really are His prophet and you fear Him, what on earth are you doing? Something's not adding up here. Jonah's actions do not line up with his profession of faith. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to people whose lives are devoid of holiness. They are enslaved to all kinds of sins. 
They have no desire to read the Word. They have no desire to be in church on Sundays. They have no desire to be around God's people. They have no interest in seeing sinners saved from hell. And yet they will claim that they have been born again. When I was a Christian, I I, I was radically changed from a life of sin. And so I was reaching out to all of my friends and telling them the Gospel. Did you know that Jesus came to forgive us and give us everlasting life and you can know that you're going to heaven because of what He's done? And some of them would say, I'm a Christian. I, I, I've been a Christian since I was 12. And I'd be like, dude, you are literally a drug dealer. Like... You live with a girl who's not your wife. You have three children from three different women. You deal meth out of your apartment and you're telling me that you are saved? Things just are not adding up here. On Wednesday nights, we're studying 1 John and we studied this verse. 1 John 2.4 where he says, Whoever says, I know him but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, John does not mean we keep His commandments perfectly. He just means there is a trajectory of one's life. There is a pattern of obedience to God in one's life where they fear the Lord and they keep His commandments as a lifestyle. You may have an episode of temporary insanity. We do that. You run from God like Jonah. But, but, but as a whole, your life should be one of consistency and obedience. Not perfect obedience. And so even though I do believe that Jonah knows the Lord, I think his words ring empty because what he says about God does not match the way he lives. You cannot say that you believe in Christ and live a life opposed to Christ. Is that fair? You cannot cherish the cross and at the same time cherish the sins that put Him on the cross. Otherwise, your profession of faith is meaningless. Even unbelievers recognize this. So, I'm sure the testimony of Jonah here has the sailors all kind of confused. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So these men are desperate. They've run out of hope. They hear Jonah's story. And now they're like, what are we supposed to do about this situation? What does your God want from us so that we can get out of here alive? 
And Jonah says something quite remarkable here, I think. He says, throw me into the sea. Throw me into the midst of this raging storm and the storm is going to cease. Now, it's not entirely clear to me why Jonah tells them to do this. Maybe he figured, well, I'm the source of the problem. And if I distance myself from these men, then God's going to take away the problem from them because this is my sin, not theirs. Or maybe he sees being thrown into the open, dark ocean as being what he deserves. Kind of like, just throw me in and punish me. Or maybe this is a sign of his repentance. Although you start reading more of the book of Jonah and it's like, I don't know. Or, I thought maybe Jonah just wants to die. Just this big, nasty, tempestuous storm. Just throw me in the midst of it. I would rather die than go and do what God has called me to do, which is preach to Israel's enemies. But the men don't want to do this. They do not think this is a good idea. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, I have a feeling that when they heard him say that, they are the ones who were fearing God in that moment. Because here they're going to take God's prophets and throw him to a certain death? Are you kidding me? You think the storm is bad now. What's going to happen then? And so they don't want to do that, but the harder they try, the worse the storm gets. And then they do what Jonah was unwilling to do. They call out to God. Verse 14. The God of Israel. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. <clears throat> now I imagine when you think about this account of Jonah, some might think that God sent the storm as a punishment to Jonah. In other words, God is angry at Jonah, the wrath against Jonah is in the form of this storm and God is punishing Jonah. But really, that's not what's going on here. God did not send the storm to punish Jonah, but to free Jonah. Jonah needs to be freed from himself. 
Jonah needs to be freed from his stubborn will that thinks he can do the opposite of what God has called him to do. And so the storm becomes an intervention by God to stop a rebel like Jonah. This is how God acts in the lives of His people. He may send a storm to stop His people in their tracks to keep them from further disobeying Him. It's not a punishment. It's an intervention. Jonah needs to be saved from himself because his desire for freedom from God's will will actually lead him into the bondage of his own will. The lie of the ages is that if you can do anything you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, then you are free. But in reality, you are a slave. You become enslaved to your own desires, and rather than them serving you, you end up serving them. And the further you get away from God, the more enslaved you become. And because God is rich in mercy, for those whom are His, He will not let them continue in that way. And so what God is doing with Jonah is breaking him from his own bondage to self. He sent the storm because he loves Jonah. If you're like Jonah today, the way he will show you how much he loves you is often by sending a storm into your life. Could be a storm in your marriage. Could be a storm in your relationships. Could be a storm in your finances. Could be a storm in your health. The storm could merely be the suffering and consequences of a disobedient life. But He will do whatever it takes to break you of your selfish will and cause you to walk in His ways. And this is not the punishment of God. It is the mercy of God. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Jonah turns away from God to pursue his own course. God sends a storm to turn Jonah around and there, now, Jonah is alone in the deep dark sea, sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. But, as you know, the story does not end here. And we find in, chapter, in verse 17, which I think should be chapter 2, verse 1, but I'm going to read it anyway. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Rather than God hunting Jonah down so that he can take away his happiness and make his life miserable, he intervenes to save Jonah. 
He intervenes to rescue Jonah and he will do it through this fish and this fish will bring him back on course and we will discuss that more next week. But let me just conclude by mentioning how Jonah is a contrast to our Savior. All the Old Testament prophets, all of them have some kind of relationship to Jesus Christ, whether they are a type and a shadow of Jesus or whether they are a contrast to Jesus. But consider this, Jesus, instead of disobeying God like Jonah, always obeyed the Father and it was His delight to do His will. Instead of running from the call to preach to the ungodly, Jesus embraced that call. Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath at the hands of pagan men, not just to save them, but to all who would believe in Him. And Jesus calmed the storm of God's judgment so that those who believe would experience the still waters of a clear conscience before God. If you are running from God today, I want to encourage you. Returning to God is spiritual and not geographical. So that even if you are almost to Tarshish, the way back to God is only one step back. Whether you've taken 500 steps or gone 500 miles in the wrong direction, returning to do God's will is only one step back, and that's called repentance. Or maybe you're here today and you're not running from God, but it's more like a gradual drift. Things are not as they ought to be. Maybe you're not on your way to Tarshish, but you're not heading to Nineveh either. God is calling you, and you are saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to forgive her. I'm not going to pay that back. He wronged me. I'm not going to be reconciled or I'm not going to stop that sin or whatever the case may be. May God in His mercy call you lovingly today to be reconciled to Him and may He not have to send in your life a storm to bring you back. Let us pray. Lord, You are rich in mercy, abounding in loving kindness. And You are patient with us, and You endure with us, and You promise that You will abide with us. I pray if there are any here in this building or any in the hearing of my voice, oh, may we learn a valuable lesson from this first chapter of Jonah. May we realize, Lord, where our own course takes us. And may we seek to submit our will to Yours. Oh, the freedom and the peace that is there 
when we walk with our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.